Greetings, everyone, and before I begin ranting and raving incoherently, I thought I'd tell you about Anchor by Spotify. It is the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need to do it all in one place. And believe me, if I can do it, anybody can do it. Anchor has tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone. And when you host through Anchor, you can distribute your podcast through listening platforms like Spotify and Apple Podcasts and even more. It has everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. And best of all, it's free. That's right, Anchor is free, and who does not like free? So if you're interested or you want to make your podcast today, download the Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. That is the Anchor app or anchor.fm to get started. Greetings, everyone, and welcome to another ludicrous car review, and a rather belated one at that. I don't really have an excuse because I just didn't really have a chance to record any episodes. And as you can probably tell, this is a... Well, it's supposed to be a ludicrous car of the month, but as you can see, it's a little belated. I'm well aware I'm recording this on July 2nd, and I'll probably be releasing it on July 3rd. Nevertheless, I'm still covering it from, well, last month. That being said, it has not changed my plans. I still intend to discuss the ludicrous car of the month being the Pontiac Firebird, or rather the history of the Pontiac Firebird. So, why did I decide to choose this topic? Well, if you've listened to any of my previous episodes, at least my most recent ones, you come to the realization that I have purchased recently a 1968 Firebird off my father, which, for better or worse, is not exactly in the... Hmm, how to describe it? Well, it is not exactly in working order at the current moment. I currently have it being looked at, and uh, hopefully I can get a... Well, at least have them get it running, and then I can hopefully fix it up myself from the rest. And as I do so, I'll be cataloging what I all do to it, and well, how I fix it and such. And hopefully that way, if you are, well, in a similar situation such as my own, well, hopefully maybe some of that information will come in handy to you all. But, I suppose, if you're here to listen to my own dribbling story of my own problems with my own car, well, that's probably not why you're here. You're here probably to listen to the history of a certain vehicle. One of the most iconic cars, in my opinion, well, pretty much forever. While the Camaro and the Mustang certainly are pretty much the most iconic pony cars ever built to man, and certainly will still remain so, well, at least until GM shuts down Chevy Fruit or Camaro for good this time, who knows. Again, and honestly, I don't understand why they keep doing this, and to be honest, this type of decisions is kind of what killed Pontiac and the Firebird, too. But we'll get into that in good time. But, to be honest, so, Pontiac and Firebird was one of the most unique vehicles ever. Because while it was classified as a pony car, or maybe even a muscle car to some people's opinions, it didn't just embody that. It embodied so much more. In fact, in my opinion, it represented the coolness of each era. In the 60s, it represented the, well, the muscle car, pony car fascination, and pretty much bridged that gap between sports car and muscle car. In the 70s, it embodied the, well slightly garishest style of the era, with pinstriping and cool-ass design logos and body flares sticking out, and just generally embodying power and just sheer exuberance. In the 80s, it represented the high-techness of the era, incorporating every kind of gizmo and gadget to digital dials and every other kind of weird-ass thing it could possibly throw into a vehicle. In the 90s, it represented the, well over-the-topness of the era, with body flares and nostril flares and flares on top of flares for the car, it with weird, kind of weird, slopey, almost futuristic design logos, and that pretty much carried it up until its final death in the early 2000s. So, with kind of a basic overview out of the way for that, let's go into the review of how this car basically set the tone for every era it possibly lived in, from its beginning to its, well, unfortunately, rather... Almost whimpering death, I hate to say, is the only way I can really describe it. Because, to be honest, the car did not go out with a bang, but rather died a slow and sad death, mostly at the hands of GM executives. So, without further ado, let's go into the Pontiac Firebird. But, well, before we go into the Firebird, we need to kind of get an idea of, well, what kicked this whole thing off? Why did they build this thing when, after all, they were producing pretty much a... Well, they were producing a Camaro. Why do they need this thing? Well, you see, Firebird had kind of gotten, well, a fast track. It was nicknamed, if I remember correctly, the Banshee. This car was basically supposed to compete in the early 60s with the, well, with the uh, Corvette. Obviously, the Corvette, though, had sold so well and become so popular that GM didn't exactly appreciate Pontiac attempting to produce some, well, 
immediate rivals. And the Banshee was a pretty badass looking car. Two-seater vehicle with a pretty decent power plant, or at least projected to be, and a really cool, almost rocketeerish spaceship design. It was actually a pretty badass looking car. But I could see where if they had produced anything similar to this, it would have given even Corvette a run for its money. So obviously GM being GM, they quickly shit-canned this idea, at least until 1964 and a half when a new beast would enter the era and pretty much dominate every well, facet of the car market. Yes, Ford, in 1964 and a half, unleashed the pony car onto the world with the, well, pony car, the Mustang. Now, GM being GM didn't really have a real answer to this vehicle, at least not at first. It wasn't until 1960, well, they started production a little earlier than that, but it wasn't until they were able to respond in 1967 with the Chevrolet Camaro. Now, the Camaro was, um, it was an interesting car, obviously. It was pretty much be really the dominating force that led GM to compete with the Mustang. But a few months later, they allowed the Pontiac Firebird to be unleashed upon the world. The Pontiac first generation was first unveiled into the world in, in February 3rd, 1967. Now, the Camaro, Camaro, rather, the Firebird would be based off the Camaro's body platform, the F-Body. Basically, they were giving him a, a consolation prize of, well, the pony car market. Obviously, GM at this point, with well, Mustang at this point having a few years lead on them and dominating the market, they wanted to get as many cars out there to try to compete with this thing. So, in 1967, the base model Firebird was released into the world. Now, the Pontiac Firebird was a bit more unique compared to its Chevrolet cousin. Obviously, the Chevy Corvette, or I'm going to get those confused a lot, I can tell. The Camaro, rather, was a bit more, well, flatlined. It had very much the similar design stylings of the Mustang, not really having any real slopes, more sharp and jagged lines to it. But the Firebird would take a bit more of a different approach. You see, they had to stick with, obviously, the body, some of the roof line styling and such, and even some of the side panels, but... Basically, they decided to rework everything else. They went with a more characteristic coke bottle design that obviously it shared with the Camaro, but rather than make it a flat front end, it added a bit more trendy-ish front end to it, where the bumpers were actually integrated into the design of the front end, also had a bit more streamlined look, but more importantly, it included its, well, malfamous egg crate grill, similar to that of the GTO and the Tempest of the Eras, which were hot sellers, and even had the Firebird rear slit taillights that were also pretty much off the Pontiac GTO. Both the hardtop and the convertible, which every car back then pretty much had one, were offered through the 1969 model year. Originally, the car was, as I mentioned, a consolation prize, and GM didn't actually think much would actually come of it. But it actually did pretty dang well. The first model base years were equipped with a few different options for engines as well. It had these smaller six-cylinder lines, six to 230. And uh, actually, before I begin continue with these things, um, obviously this is the only engine actually that was the standard Chevrolet engine. Pretty much throughout its entire lifespan, at least until getting into the late 80s or the early 80s and that, Pontiac would pretty much produce their own engines. In fact, even the 350 block that would be offered in this car as well were Pontiac blocks, not Chevrolet. This is probably surprising to some who pretty much assume that every engine that's the same size and from GM would pretty much be offered in the same, well, pretty much from the same car. Why produce the same engine from a different manufacturer? Well, to be honest, there was several different engine ratings in that and different power ratios that were available in the Pontiac block that were not quite available in the well, the Chevrolet block. But anyways, back to the engine options. Obviously, the 230 would uh, put out a pretty decent 165 horsepower, which was usually available in the Sprint model, with a four-barrel carburetor developing 215. But most power opted, opted for one of three V8s. The earlier 326, which had been a pretty much workhorse for Pontiac for quite some time. This was usually available in the earlier options and produced 250 horsepower with the four-barrel High put 326 producing 285. Or the 325 horsepower option or the 400 cubic inch 6 liter from the GTO. All 1967 and 1968 600 engines had throttle restrictions in them. This is where, well, the Firebird began to show its, well, power. You see, the GTO had been pretty much a dominant powerhouse amongst it. But even with the Firebird being a much smaller and lighter platform and much having the same well, ridiculously overpowered engine, they had throttle restrictions so that you couldn't fully open the throttle, basically choking out the engine. The Ram Air option was also available and 
provided optional hood scoops and uh, higher flow heads with stronger valves and a much more powerful camshaft as well. Power to the Ram Air package was the same as the conventional 400HO, but peaked at 5,200 RPMs, a bit more kick to it. The 230 engines were subsequently enlarged for the 1966 to the 250-inch, and this is where they began to uh, basically produce their own six-cylinders as well for Pontiac. It had an increased 175 horsepower using well, a one-barrel carburetor and a high-output version for the Sprint, producing a similar 215 horsepower with a four-barrel carburetor. Also for the 1965 model, the 256 to the 326, which has been the workhorse for quite a while, was produced with a Pontiac 350 engine V8, which is placed, well, 350 cubic inch, or 354 cubic inches, and produced 265 horsepower with a two-barrel carburetor and a high output option for the 350 with a revised cam, offering a 320 horsepower option. Optionally as well, they also had the 400 cubic inch engines during the 1965 model later on. Obviously the 400 would remain in the 68 model as well. And also produced a 400 in 1969 with the RAM option, which uh, would kick up the horsepower to about 345 horsepower at 5,000 RPMs and 430 foot-pounds of torque at 3,400 RPMs. And 335 subsequently, yada yada yada. The 350 high output was revived again with different cam lifters and such in 1969 in for 325 horsepower. And during 1969, a special 303 was even optioned for a design for the SCCA road racing applications that was not available in production cars. Although, to be honest, I would have loved to see that engine in a car. See, one thing about pony cars, many people tend to discourage obviously it's fun to put a big engine in them considering they're so lightweight and nimble but most people don't realize is that those six cylinders while producing a good amount of horsepower also made the cars a hell of a lot lighter meaning you could throw them around the corners a lot easier in fact some people actually when racing these cars preferred the smaller v8s or even the inline sixes because they were so lightweight and nimble especially on road courses now modifications for the 1968 included the addition of a federally mandated side marker lights which well, honestly they had a little fun with and kind of became sort of iconic for the car as well for the front of the car and turn signals were made larger and extended to wrap around the front edges of the car as well and on the rear the pontiac v-shaped arrowhead logo was added on each side which the v arrow became pretty much iconic for pontiac around this time because well it was pretty much being incorporated into everything pontiac though they had pretty much a well it always had this logo but it would really become into its own especially with the firebirds in my opinion they just stand out so much better anyways the front door vent windows were replaced with a single pane of glass which is my dad's one which if you look at a 68 gto you'll see the little panels that kick out yeah those are the arrow glass this is pretty much means it has a straight glass on the front which meant in my opinion gives it a much better roof line as well as far as the uh, 69 model was concerned, it received a major facelift with a new front-end design, but unlike the GTO, it did not have the Endura bumper, as well as the front engine or instrument panel, I should say, and steering wheel also receiving a revise in 1969. But all this is well and good. But more importantly, in 1969, Pontiac would release a new beast unto the world, a car that, while powerful back then in 69, would become famous a few years later they introduced for only a thousand dollars one thousand eight hundred dollars which is about eight thousand dollars today for a grand you get the handling package called the trans am performance and appearance package or upc ws4 named after the trans am series which pontiac had been competing in for quite some time with these cars or quite some time but basically since the cars were introduced and a total of nine six hundred eighty nine hardtops and eight convertibles were made if you have one of those 869 convertibles let me tell you you have a rare bird on your hands there my friend you probably have a car worth well over well, well, three figures at least in my opinion because these cars are pretty badass as well now due to engineering problems that delayed the introduction of the 1970 firebird that would be the second generation beyond the usual fall debut Pontiac computed yeah, computed. <laughs> Pontiac continued to produce the 1969 model Firebirds early into the months of 1970. The other 1970 Pontiac models had been introduced in September 
18th of 1969, and by the late spring of 69, Pontiac had deleted all model year references to the Firebird literature and promotional materials. Basically, they wiped the 69 off the map so people would not get confused when the 70 models came out. Now, production totals were actually pretty impressive for this thing. From 19, in 1967, when the car first unveiled, it produced a pretty decent 82,000 units, with 68 being one of its more powerful years, producing 107. And with 69 going back to about 67 units as well. They produced a quite a variety of engines for this thing, but the ones you really want to know that are pretty popular, at least nowadays, that you see left. You don't see many of the straight sixes, but the ones more popular are the 350, but more importantly, the 400 block, as obviously a Pontiac 400 is a pretty badass-looking car. Now, about the Trans Am model, that's probably one of the more sleeker designs, the Trans Am model. You see, the Trans Ams would get the slightly different front end as the egg crate grill would basically usually just mesh into basically a bar down the middle and then the frame out for it in chrome and headlights inside of that but they would frame out the headlights with more body paint panels and also it would add blue stripes down the center along with a small wing in the back they also began to sharpen up the lines on the car as well in this last 69 generation and to be honest out of the trans am models i think it's one of the more sleeker looking ones it's a bit more subdued but still pretty badass now, in 1970, they begin production on probably the most famous of the models of these cars. In fact, it would be made famous by a certain movie, which I'm sure a majority of you probably know. But, before we get on to that, in 1970, the car would receive a much-needed and, well, I say needed, but a much more important facelift that really kicked the car off into becoming the icon of the 70s that it would become. Whereas 68, in the 60s, the first three model years, it was the pony car, muscle car. 70s, it would begin to take on the flamboyancy of the 70s, let's just say. Now, as aforementioned, the 70s uh, model year would be delayed until February 26th of 1970 because of tooling problems and such. And the Papa designs as the 1970.5 model, while leftover 69s were listed as the early Pontiac literature without the model year identifications. The generation of model years were available only in coupe form, obviously, as Pontiacs would only ever be. And replacing the Colt bottle design was the more swoopy design style, whereas originally had been very much well, based off the Camaro platform, it began to adopt a bit more of identity of its own. It began to take these similar design styles of the Trans Am model from the 69s and incorporated a much more singular pattern of headlights on the front. Basically, they encased them in their own system and pretty much extended that whole casing out into the fenders. And it produced a pretty iconic look with a bit more of an individualist section for the egg crate grill that had pretty much made it famous. While still retaining some of the original traditional elements, the top rear window line was pretty much almost straight at this point, uh, to the top of the lid trunk, and the new design was initially characterized by a large B-pillar until 1975, when the rear window was basically enlarged. Originally, the wraparound-style window that occupied more of the B-pillar was initially supposed to be a design... But uh, problems with the glue would actually prove a problematic problem. Basically, it would not seal the rear window and led to flat-style window being used and the redesign. They kind of envisioned, if you look at the... from the way I read it, basically they envisioned kind of a similar, almost a bubble-style one, kind of similar to what was available on the Corvette models. But unfortunately, obviously, they couldn't get this thing to seal in properly and led to leakage leading to a more flat window design, which, in my opinion, probably looks even a little bit better. Basically, this would remain until 1975 when the model would receive another facelift that would make it pretty much, well, the icon it would become, especially in a certain movie where the Trans Am would really metamorphosize the vehicle. But it was also in the 1970s that they began to really kick out a lot of the famous models that they would produce, basically a lot of subtypes and different options. The Firebird Esprit, the Firebird Formula, whereas the Esprit was more offered as a luxury model and came with appearance options, and a deluxe interior and a Pontiac 350 as a standard equipment, the Formula was more advertised as an alternative to the Trans Am and could be ordered with all the options available in the Trans Am, with the exception of the well, iconic fender flares, shaker scoop, and the fender heat extractors. Basically, the beat that would help divide a feet into the engine, yada yada. I, I don't feel like going into any model bait. So, anyways, um, based model Firebird came equipped with a 150 or 5 horsepower 250, the inline six that pretty much was its workhorse and backbone of the Pontiac Firebird, and the Firebird Spirit and Formula came standard with a 255 horsepower 350. 
The Esprit, the Esprit could also be ordered with a two-barrel carb, 400 cubic inch engine, producing out 165 horsepower, while the Formula could be optioned in to receive the L78 model four-barrel 400 that produced a pretty whopping 330 horsepower, or the Ram 74 Ram Air 3 with a 400 putting out a whopping 345 horsepower. This thing could haul ass if you had one of these. There were also two uh, Ram Air... 400s, basically in the 6.6 liter engines, available for the 1970 Trans Am with the, the 350 Ram Air, with the 350 LC4 Ram Air 400, basically one that was available in the GTO, and the Ram Air 5, or wait, 4, sorry, my apologies, that were carried over from 1969. The Ram Air 4 was exclusive to the Trans Am and could not be ordered in any other lower fiber models. Basically, you produced a kick, but more kick. The difference between the A70, basically the GTO 400s and the Firebird engines, was that the secondary carburetor throttle linkage had a restrictor once again, which prevented the rear barrels from opening completely, basically choking off the engine just a wee bit so you would not be able to beat its GTO cousin. Additionally, the linkage could also be allowed full carburetor operation, resulting in basically the identical engine performance. And basically what a lot of people would do is they just get these carburetors and just pop the linkage off, we'll open the all throttle up, and you'd have basically the same kick and horsepower as you would in a GTO model. Basically, being able to smoke most GTO models as well. For the 1970-1970 modeling years, all fibers were equipped with radios and antenna, which were pretty big deals for the time as well. And these were, more importantly, mounted in the glass in the windshield, making a more streamlined design to the car. This was also a very new and very... Well, pretty cool technology for the time, as every car was still using antennas for quite some time afterwards. The 1971 model year had, well, basically a few minor changes. Fender across, the fenders were slightly adapted a bit to feature a more one-year-only exhaust vent seen in the lower half of the fenders, which is probably one of the more badass things they've ever done on these cars. The cool firing side exhaust pipes that usually only seen like Corvettes and such. Pretty cool option, but it was only a one-year end obviously was uh, a bit more interesting the rear seat console also introduced the option of a honeycomb or uh, sorry the rear seat console was introduced as an option and the honeycomb wheels became available for all firebirds and this honeycomb design would be basically one of the more iconic wheel designs pontiac would ever make the 1971 saw changes the way the engines were rated from the factory, and GM mandated that engines no longer use the SAE gross horsepower ratings and use the SAE net horsepower ratings to help alleviate some of the rising cost of insurance for performance vehicles. Because, well, let's just say it looked a little better to say it wasn't quite 345 horsepower, but a little less because, well, it's not at the full RPM range. But that's just how we measure it. The insurance company don't know any better. So basically, they tried to use this to make the car a bit more appealing to the younger audience. They also, um, the compression ratio was also lowered for some of the models, and detuned the power ratings from some of the engines as parts of the new requirements for low lead fuels. However, the engine options mainly mostly remained unchanged from 1970. As the limit of the comprehensive ratio was lowered, this allowed for larger displacement engines to become available, and would introduce the door to one of the most powerful engines, or one of the most badass engines in my opinion, the 455, which was now available in Firebird in two configurations. The 455 was also available in the L75 model for 325 horsepower, or the version of the LS5 for 335 horsepower for the high-powered version. Both the 450 and the 455HO were available as engine options for the Pontiac formula, but the Trans Am would please was pretty much get the 455 HO as standard. Now, these are pretty rare birds because these only were produced basically from this early 70s model. The later Trans Ams would not get this as more restrictions became in place. But um, it was pretty much a one-off thing. This was basically called the Superbird, as some people began to refer to it as. And it was probably one of the more powerful Trans Am models. Or actually, it is probably the most powerful Trans Am model they would ever end up producing. In 1972, during the 1972 strike, the, far, the Firebird had the familiar F-body... Uh, sorry, my brain's on fire. Anyways, during the 1972 strike, the Firebird and other similar F-body Camaros were nearly dropped because, well, they didn't get to produce many of them. Again, they saw very few differences, keeping the pretty similar design, the individual egg crate grill, the similar headlight designs, and the more swoopy body panels, as well as some... Trans Am models still keeping the fender flares. 
but uh, they also begin to hint at the bird becoming a bit more prominent on the car's designs. The Firebird Trans Am models would basically get the larger bird put onto it pretty much in the front of the hood, but later on in 74, this bird would become much larger and become pretty much the icon of its later cousin, but we'll get to that in a minute. All the other, uh, the difference between the 72 from other 70 to 73 models were the hexagonal honeygroom grill insert for the nose of the vehicle. But other than that, it was uh, pretty much just, that was it. That was the only real change to the exterior design of the car. However, engine options remain mostly unchanged. However, the LS5 455 engine was dropped, but the LS5 400HO remained an option for the formula and standard for the Trans Am. Pontiac advertised in 1972 the 400HO as a detuned to 300 horsepower, but the engine was pretty much unchanged from 71. It was just, again, insurance crap. Starting during 1972 and continuing until 1977, the Pontiac Firebird was now, from now on, only produced in Norwood, Ohio facility, which is pretty much where they would basically produce some of their best vehicles out of this facility as well. In 1973, they began to change things a bit more. The Trans Am added two new colors, a Buccaneer Red and a Brewster Green, which, honestly, is a pretty damn good YouTube channel. Check it out, Brewster Studio. Excellent work. Anyways, um, the exterior upgrades included an updated for modern nose to the bird. The new uh, hood bird option was available, the RPO WW7 hood decal, the a $55 option exclusive to the Trans Am, which would feature a much larger bird, and the yeah, bird pretty much would be um, iconic to the whole car. Basically, the large bird, or the flaming chicken, as some began to affectionately call it, would basically dominate the entire front part of the hood and become famous in the certain movie Smoking the Bandit. Yep, the first time the bird came out was in 1973 for a measly $55 option for the Pontiac Trans Am, and pretty much, well, for 55 bucks, why the hell not? Obviously, it was much larger and shared the same accent color as the schemes on the hood bird. Inside the 1973, the standard interior equipment was pretty much all the same for model years. Pretty much the same. The uh, new horse collar option was, though, available in the custom interior featuring new seat covers and door panels. In 1973, Pontiac also made new safety and emissions requirements for 1973. There were extra steel reinforcements in the bumper and core to support a, the fender. Basically, this begin to hint... This little change here would be to hint basically at what would end up basically choking out the ridiculous power that the Firebirds would be producing. But that's coming up eventually. Now in 1973, the engine was displaced the 455 cube inch, which pretty much was the workhorse at this point for the Trans Am models. But the base 75 and the Super Duty, which would become the Super Duty engine for one year only, for the LS2 option, the base 45 horsepower produced 44 fewer horsepower than the roundabout port Super Duty 455. The horsepower for the base LS75 455 was rated at 250 horsepower at 4,000 RPMs and 700 or 370 foot-pounds of torque at 280 RPMs. Pontiac removed the HO designation from the base engine and simply decaled the now non-functioning shaker with a 455. The all-hand-assembled LS2 SD455 SD engine was rated at 290 horsepower at 4,000 RPMs and 395 horsepower, and basically would be one of the most powerful engines they'd ever produce. This also included a new EGR system, which delayed the SSD program until into the late production year, and the shaker decal was added SSD-455 on the shaker. They also introduced radial tuning, and this is mentioned all this time. When ordered, it would include a 15-inch radial tire, which delivered a more comfortable ride while also making it much better at cornering. The 1973 Trans Am production was um, up pretty well in for over previous years. The 75 405, the 45 was produced around 3,130 models with automatic and their 1400 with manual and special ordered $550 option LS2 SSD 455 produce only about 180 automatics and 72 manuals. Now, these super birds, these super duty birds, um, maybe I'll think, or the transient super duty, as people just basically call it, was probably one of the more powerful engines ever produced. Don't let the horsepower numbers fool you. These engines did not underperform by any means. You'll notice the RPMs were rated much lower in some later models, which were already up to almost 5,000 RPMs. This was deliberate as, again, emissions began to come in, and many people suspect that GM may have 
slightly fudge the numbers in order to get away with now cracking down emission standards. Now, in 1974, the Pontiac Firebird would begin to see a couple more changes to its model as well, including a more famous well, snort-style design, the horse snort. I don't know what the hell they call the grill up. Get to it in a minute. Look that up. Anyways, about the curb weight rose dramatically for the 74 model year because of, well, intimation of a 5 mile per hour telescoping bumpers, which basically began to strangle the car a little bit. Various other crash and safety man, uh, safety regulated structural enhancements. The SDD 455 Trans Am weighed in at 3,850 pounds in the first year of production. 1974 model year, actually 1973, sorry. Um, the 1974 model years featured a redesigned shovel nose front end and a wide, or new wide slotted taillights. The 400, the 455, the 455, and the 4 S, or the SD 455 engines were offered in the Trans Am and Formula models during 74. Uh, June 1974 test of a newly delivered privately owned SSD. SD 455 Trans Am, but um, they honestly wouldn't produce too many of these. This appeared in the Sportsman Illustrated model with an unmodified car with a test weight of 4,000 pounds, which is pretty dang heavy, but it would still clock in at 1400 or 14.25 seconds and 101 miles per hour, which is pretty dang good. The car had an automatic and even had AC as well. Also, the factory rating was 290 horsepower, listed at 400. 4,400 RPMs. Well, the factory tachometer had a 5,750 red line limit, which means that they kind of, again, fudged the numbers just a wee bit to get under the numbers for they needed to. The real horsepower on the chassis dyno, as reported by High Performance Pontiac Magazine on January 2007, this also consisted of an SE Power Horsepower Factory rating. Anyways, um, 1974 was driven by um, begin to be its, um, more famous, uh, cars began to, well, not to skip, basically the Pontiac Fire began to become a bit more legendary, and began to basically hit the limelight, basically, as one might say. It began to, well, become movie famous. It was driven by Jim Rockford in the pilot movie in the first season of The Rockford Files, and for, well, every season following it. He would continue to drive these cars in the seasons running from all the way up until the sixth season where he continued to drive a 78 model year because he didn't like the new 1980 model years anyways basically it would begin to show its um well movie fame which would become even more popular in a certain movie about a sheriff and smuggling booze anyways the car now um Badge as a lower tier SP models, but were also formulas with twin scoop hoods replacing the scoopless ones. Another hit was the twin exhausts and the rear anti roll bars that were not uh, used in the Esprit models. Basically, these were only available in the formulas, which was again another model they introduced around that time. Now, in 1975, now in 1975, they began to really change up some of the model. It featured a new wraparound rear window that curved around the body to occupy more of the B-pillar, and the rear body shape and the bumper remained basically unchanged, but the turn signals were moved up from the front balance panels into the grills, which helped distinguish the 1974 or 75 model from the 74 front end. But otherwise, they were pretty much the same cars. There was also, the last year, a larger profile, large snout formula hood for the Firebird 400 model. But unfortunately, this would also signal some of the greater changes as well. The Super Duty engine and the Turbo Hydromatic 400 three-speed automatic were no longer available options for the 75 model. Due to the use of catalytic converters starting in 1975, the HT400 would also not fit alongside the catalytic converters underneath the vehicle. Basically, these engines were just too dang big for the well, government restrictions being placed. The smaller hydro, the Turbo Hydromatic 350 automatic was deemed suitable for the power output of the engine and significantly decreased in from earlier years. The TH300 drew less power and also not require the use of the electronic kickdown system, but Pontiac L78-400 was standard basically in well, pretty much every car now at this point. The standard for the standard in the Trans Am model and the 455 was optioned as optional for 75 and the 76 models. But by this point, the 7455, which had once been the 
while the dominant powerhouse was beginning to get a little bit strangled and the 400 model would pretty much begin to dominate overall. It also saw the start of, well, 75 began to saw the start of the dying 400s, you might say. 400 at this point had become a workhorse for Pontiac as it was basically much thrown into pretty much every vehicle that could fit it. But um, as this workhorse began to be changed a little bit, they began to cast the models 500-577. These casts were considered weak blocks, considered the other ones, and they had a lower nickel content, had metal had metal shavings off in the lower journals, and the blocks also decreased the overall weight and the cost and the emissions to meet the now tightening smog restrictions. These blocks were used until the W72 engines reverted the original specifications from the start of the decade with the cast 481988 cast in the 1977 model. Basically, if you have an engine from these models, it may seem like you had a bit more restrictions, a little less horsepower, and also you didn't necessarily risk a bad engine, but just you lacked a little bit more horsepower as some of the other models would later have. But originally the 1975, or the L75, sorry, 455 with the 7.5 liter was dropped entirely, but returned mid-year available with only a 4-engine four in, four Borg Warner Standard T10, and it was no longer available for the formula. Although it was produced back, it was brought back as the 455HO, it was not the same engine as the LS, as the 71 and 72 model here. And it had seen, basically, the power was, it was strangled at this point. Let's just put it bluntly. The standard deep port engine was much lower profile camshaft, but restricting the exhaust system. And also, so, well, larger body panel platforms basically begin to bog down the engine a bit. Basically, the cars were... Bit heavier. Power output was restricted to only 200 horsepower with the torque rating of 330 horsepower at 2000 RPMs. It was the largest displacement performance engine still available, and track tested showed that the 75 455 was capable of a 16.2 quarter mile time with the similar LA82 or the L82 Corvette, which is pretty impressive. I mean, these cars were putting up times similar to the Corvettes of the similar year. In 1976, Pontiac celebrated the 50th anniversary year in 1976, and to commemorate this event, Pontiac unveiled a special Trans Am option at the 1966-76 Chicago Auto Show. It was painted black with gold accents, and this was the first anniversary Trans Am package, and probably the most famous Trans Am package ever produced. The first production, black and gold special edition, a removable T-top, which was a big development. I mean, T-tops were pretty dang cool, in my opinion. Developed by Hearst, was set to be included in the Y82 LTA options, but provided some problematic installations and quality control, which led to some LED2s not being delivered with the Hearst T-tops. All Hearst T-tops equipped to the cars were built in Northwood, Ohio plant. Basically, they had a major problem where they would cause leakage, they wouldn't install properly, or just flat out break. It became available as an option later on in the 77 model years. 76 marked the end of the Pontiac 450, basically the end of an era. It could no longer meet the well, strangling restrictions at this point, and the HL moniker used in the prior years was completely dropped. The 75 was only available with the 4-speed manual Bore Warner T Super T10 and was exclusive to the Trans Am. Basically, they only get the 400 at this point. It also included the... Uh, W455 appearance package for the 70 for the 76 model year and conditioning of two-tone appearance package with lower accents across the bottom panel with a large formula decal across the bottom and the firebird decal on the rear spoiler. In 1977, Fire Rack received a facelift that featured four rectangular headlamps which would become pretty popular and famous and a shaker scoop was also revised for this year. The early 77 Trans MTAs Came, came off with a center lower profile shaker scoops. The formula hood, which changed as well, also basically began to change pretty much similar to what the second generation had. Now, overall, in my opinion, at the very least, they offered one of the more popular options for this car as well, the snowflake design wheels, which, in my opinion, are some of the best-looking wheels ever put onto a vehicle, bar none. Now, overall, the LA, the Y82 package, which obviously included its famous Firebird and the Rally 2 wheels as credit options. 
for the Esprit and Additional Appearance Package, RPO W60, called the Skybird Appearance Package, became available and featured an all-blue exterior and interior. This package, which they decided to be called the Bluebird, or similar to the Yellowbird and Redbird packages, to follow the up and couple of model years, but the name was already in use for the company that produced school buses. Yeah, they got beaten by a school bus company on that one. <laughs> Which is kind of funny. Anyways, in 1975, or 77 I should say, General Motors began to produce a, well, source a larger section of V8 engines to supply the lower model Firebirds. You see, three of the um, 355 blocks that Pontiac was now producing, or originally was producing on its own, was, well, obviously not profitable for them anymore to do this. So the, the uh, Oldsmobile 355 or the and the 403 V8, as well as the Chevrolet 305 and 350 in V8 engines became options for the Firebird Esprit formula just after June in 1977. Previously, the Chevrolet inline 6 was the only outsourced engine that Pontiac had produced, but now Pontiac was, well, at this point being forced to introduce other models. Pontiac made a 301 4.9 liter V8 engine available for the lower Firebird models, but due to such high demand and popularity, they removed the car it entirely. It's available only for the Firebird model year, allowing this model year specifically to allow only enough 301 engines for the other Pontiac inlines. It was reintroduced as an option in 1979 as production for the 400 ceased, and tooling was converted over to simply only 301s. Basically, 79 would mark the end of the 400 era, but let's not look ahead to the sad eras yet. Anyways, Trans Am had now three different distinct options the 78 400 and the optional extra cost W72 400, and an Oldsmobile sourced LE80 for three option, which, despite being a larger engine, was much less more powerful. 97.7 also saw the cubic inch meter metrics on shakers drop the flavor for the display measurement. Obviously, without 455, much bigger number on the hood, they decided to go with the displacement of the engine, which 6.6 liter decal for all 400 and 403 engines, and only optional LA or W72 models received the TA 6.6. Basically, you wanted the TA 6.6 because that showed you had a much more powerful engine underneath the hood. Whereas the 6.6 liter could mean, well, a decently powered 400 Pontiac or a much wimpier LA80 Oldsmobile. Now, as Pontiac had discontinued the 455 in the previous model year, a modified 400 Pontiac dubbed the TA 6.6 was basically the new workhorse for the Pontiac Trans Am models. With a single four-barrel 800 CFM Rochester Quadrajet carburetor, it produced a pretty decent 200 brake horsepower at 3,600 RPMs with a maximum torque of 325 foot-pounds of torque, which is pretty dang good, as opposed to the regular 6.6 liter, which only rated 180 horsepower. Now, it had chrome valve covers, which produced in the 400s had painted valve covers as well, Originally, for 77, the 72 shared the same air cleaner and shared the same 500-577 cast block as the LA2, but received 6x4 heads. Now, the, um, well, basically, these cars would be the most, I don't know, it's hard to say. While these cars are probably the most famous cars and probably some of the best looking vehicles they produced, it's a bit of a handbag and a mixed bag of emotions for me. Far too often you see people trying to pedal for three blocks which were much underpowered and weren't even real Pontiac blocks and try to pedal them as some of the best ones ever produced. But it was also the era of pretty much making itself famous. The 1977 Trans Am Special Edition became famous after it was featured in the hit movie Smokey and the Bandit. Basically the black and gold the Trans Am you see in that movie that was probably the greatest car Trans Am, or rather Pontiac, had ever produced and would definitely become its most famous. At this year, everybody pretty much wanted a 77 or 78 Trans Am. The 78 Trans Ams were not that much different with the slight change with a switch from the honeycomb to a crosshatch basically pattern on the grill with honestly no other real changes. The decals for the standard Trans Am changed from the looping style lettering to a block style. And to be honest, that's about it. Oh yeah, the horse changed to a Fisher 
mid-year, 78. Also introduced the Redbird package and the Firebird Esprit model. Um, but to be honest, there wasn't really a whole lot to talk about in this model year. They did manage to kick a bit more horsepower up in the SW72 options to 220 horsepower. Uh, but to be honest, this only was detonated, by the way, by an XX on the block. If you got one of those, kudos to you. But um, to be honest, there wasn't really a whole lot to speak of. These cars were pretty much remained the same even up through 79. The front end was restyled a little bit in 79, which also marked the 10th anniversary for Trans Am. For the three possible engines, obviously the 403, 400, but it was also available... But the standard was now the TH350 three-speed automatic. But, as I mentioned before, despite some slight changes to the front end, which went to a more roundish style and began to incorporate the honeycomb style or the egg crate grill into just one solid piece in the front end. But the problem was, 79 would also begin to see, well, the death of an era. Because as you see, my friends... With tightening restrictions and basically the government breathing down the neck, Pontiac was forced to essentially shut down production of the 400 block, which in the end ended up killing basically, well, pretty much the era. The 6.6 National Hot Rod Association rated the limited edition availability TA 6.6 high Apple 400 engine at 260-289 horsepower, which was significantly higher than its estimates. And Pontiac sold over 1,600 Trans Ams, the highest sold in any year. But again, like I said, hints began to go around at the 400 in engines, basically inevitable death. In 1980, well, 79 did have the first time they ever had a Daytona model, model year. But anyways, in 1980, it was officially done. With ever-increasing emissions restrictions and basically... No hope for any kind of decent V8, but still is trying to attempt to, to hang on to the V8 era. Trans Am had to drop, or Pontiac just in general, the Firebird 400 engine was officially dead. No longer or forever any, anymore would Pontiac ever produce a 400 block engine. Sadly, it was reduced to a 301 offered in 1979 as a credit option, but now it was the standard engine. No manual transmission was also available for the 400 or the Trans Ams, and received a 3-speed automatic turbo hydromatic 350. Engine options included a turbocharged 301, a, or a Chevrolet small 305, but the turbocharged 301 was probably the more popular option, obviously between the two because well at least it had a bit more horsepower behind it the tb305 accumulated some boost in the hood but acquirement the hood of the 301t equipped firebirds had a large offset bulge to accommodate for more mounting positions of the carburetor on the engine as well as the turbocharger exhaust and occupied a large amount of the space in the engine bay basically it was at this point seemingly more turbochargers than basically engine block this, the in the uh, 3021T equipped TA models or Trans Am models, restricted to an automatic transmission with a 3.01 weight gear ratio. The Trans Am was once again featured smoking in the Meta 2, but was fitted with a nitrous oxide tanks by Marvin Miller, basically in order to get the desired performance, because the car just at this point was just not kicking up the standards. Let's just say. 1981 would be the final model year for the second Trans Am generation, still featuring its giant bird and flamboyant design fenders of the 70s and going into the 80s. But just as the era was dying, so too was this design. The model year was slightly restyled, but basically, instead of having a gold bird, it was a silver bird. I'm not sure if that's an upgrade. But... Overall, the petrol cap was attached to the rear taillights, and a special edition Trans Am was offered, but the Firebird was gold. But overall, it would begin to signal basically some bad times for pretty much everyone involved. In 1982-1992, would attempt to revitalize the Firebird as well. Basically, the car became changed majorly over this year. The 1989 model had much more, well, it was a huge difference, let's just say. 
early Pontiac models, the 82 model here, had a very much a sloped uh, design. And basically, had a, basically, it was a huge redesign. The availability of cost of gasoline with a dual fuel crisis meant that the weight and fuel consumption of the vehicles had to greatly increase with the third generation and had to be well, greatly considered with the design. The F-body development, both for the third generation Firebird and Camaro, were proposed as possible front-wheel drive platforms. Thank God they didn't go with that. But the idea was scrapped, thank God. And computerized engine management was basically in its infancy. And the fuel efficient being the primary objective, it was not possible to have high horsepower engines and high torque numbers. They did manage to cut the weight from the design so that the acceleration performance would be much better in the 80s models, considered the wimpiest part of the, well, 79 model years and the 80 model years. But they also succeeded in reducing fuel consumption as well, offering a four-cylinder engine Firebird, which would have a pretty good 34 miles to the gallon. GM executives decided that the engine effort was best spent on aerodynamics and chassis development, leading to its very slopier design and pretty much barely recognizable frying grill, but it still kept its Firebird outward appearance. They created a modern platform so that the engine technology was pretty dang advanced for its time. Basically, as the world advanced in technology era, well, Pontiac once again followed the era. They would have a well-balanced package with acceleration, braking, and handling, as well as aerodynamics. Which, honestly, while the cars were a bit more flat and nosy-ish, the fact is that they were pretty dang aerodynamic. The Firebird and the Camaro were completely redesigned in the 82 model year, with the windshield slope set at 62 degrees, basically creating a more aerodynamic platform. And for the first time, a large glass-domed hatchback that required no metal structure to support it. Basically, the entire rear part of these vehicles were basically glass. Now, the uh, two concealed pop-up headlights were also introduced in the 82 model year. Basically, being one of the more popular parts of the vehicle, the pop-up headlights, which were, again, embodiment of the 80s era. As many cars would be new coupe incorporate these pop-up headlights as being a sportier aspect to them because when it was down it created a much more sleeker profile with the primary character distinguished the third generation firebird from its camaro siblings and prior form a sign characteristic carried from both generations basically in addition to being about 400 or 500 pounds lighter than the previous design the new design was also more aerodynamically produced Basically, it was the most aerodynamic car GM had ever produced, pretty much at this point. Wind tunnels were even used to form the new F-body platform shape, and Pontiac took full advantage of it. The aerodynamic development extended basically to the fine aluminum wheels with smooth hubcaps for addition and the functional rear spoiler, which, pretty much at this point, was basically just a design option. In 1988, the Trans model, which was still being produced, which was built with the standard 350 cubic inch, which was a good improvement from the 301, was offered with the optional removable T-top roofs. However, any buyer ordering this option could only order the 305 cubic inch there because the roof did not have the support for all the extra torque from the engine. Basically, the power produced from the 305 would begin to twist the lightweight body around and deform the engine. The cars a little bit. It also produced a rather ugly and hideous notchback version, which was replaced with the standard long, large glass dome. Thank goodness, because it did look pretty bad. And the shape and appearance, basically, it the um, it was basically an attempt to push the Pontiac Firo, which had the notchback design with a special fiberglass lid deck, but it just it, it looked like crap. It tried to represent the Ferrari 288 GTO, but it just yeah, look bad. Anyways, a total of 718 of these notches were built in 1988. Thank God, not more of them, because my God, that would be bad to see. I guess if you have one of these models, it's probably a pretty rare thing to have. But um, yeah, no, it was just it just wasn't good looking, at least in my opinion, personally. Now, 89 would also mark a, or 88, I should say, began to mark a slight change with 89, basically, in 89 in. Well, I just say the 89 didn't really produce much. The 89 was just kind of there. It did have a bit more of a design aspect, I guess, to it. But um, to be honest, it became more boxier in the later 89 models. But like I said, overall, it wasn't really that big of a 
change. The 91 model years and such began to get more slopey overall in design. And in finally, in 1992, or in 83, I should say, they produced their final generation for the next seven years, up until 2002. The infamous catfish design was forced upon Pontiac. Though Pontiac had got this um, interesting design choice from Chevrolet, including basically just a giant airflow design, it tried to beef up with a little bit more cooler aspects. It included a much more pointier and still slightly egg-created grille, a rear spoiler, and some indents in the hood as well. The fourth generation fireplate amplified the aerodynamic stylings, basically forced upon it in the previous generation, while rear library axles and floor plan aft from the front seam seats seemed largely the same. 90% of the Firebird's parts were all new. Overall, the style of the Firebird became more strongly reflected the, the uh, original Banshee concept car that the 1991 facelift. Lift, uh, did for it. Basically, it began to embody the original car that they had produced, or basically been rejected as a concept car all those many years ago. But, as the Camaro major improvements included standard dual airbags, front wheel brakes, 16-inch wheels, rack and pinion steering, short long-arm front suspension, several non-rusting body composite panels, throughout its fourth generation, trim levels would include a V6 powered Firebird and a VA-powered Formula and Trans Am. Standard manual transmissions, but the T5 manual was uh, available by for V6s, and the T56 by Warner, a 6-speed manual for the V8s. But overall, these engines were still technically Chevy engines. While Pontiac would add their own kicks to some of these parts, like, for example, the 4L60E with built-in electronic controls, it was still essentially Chevrolet at this point. Pontiac was, at this point, no longer really producing any of its rolling wheel engines. From 1993 to 1995, uh, Firebirds received a 106-horsepower V6, an enhanced version of third generations, then the mid-year with a 200-horsepower option, became the Firebirds' sole engine. They didn't even have a V8. From 1993 to 1997, the sole engine for the Firebird Trans Am model was a 5.7-liter LT1 V8, essentially identical to the LT1 from the C4 Corvette, except for a more basically flow-restrictive intake, which once again choked the engine so it wouldn't become more powerful than its Corvette cousin. Beginning in 1994, model year cars, DC1 2001 stereo system became to replace the Delco units. This revision also introduced for other Pontiac car lines. It basically was more ergonomical and had a much more cooler design. As the 90s began to kick in the safe with more fancier technologies, Pontiac began to reflect them with much more interesting design choices and would later produce a Trans Am GT trim level, which was dropped from the lineup after its model year run in 1994. For 1995, all Trans Ams received 155 speedometers and Z-rated tires. They would also begin to well, round out the shape of the car a little bit. Now, in 1997, 1997 began to integrate the new OBD2 system, which 1995 was still using the OBD1. Firebird performance levels improved for 1996 with an establishment of a stronger 200 horsepower 3.8 liter V6 as its new base engine and the power ratings for the LT1 increased from 285 for 1996. Due to its new dual catalytic converter exhaust system, the 96 also was the first model, obviously, as I mentioned, to include the OBD2 computer system, which optional performance um, enhancements were also available for the Firebird trim level, and the Y87 performance packages for the V6 added mechanical features of the V8 setup, such as four-wheel disc brakes, faster response and steering, limited strip slip differentials, and dual tailpipes. While the formulas and the Trans Am's functional dual inlet air am hoodlets, which were pretty popular and pretty famous and pretty gaudy as well, returned as part of the WS6 performance package. The optional packages boosted rate of horsepower from 285 to 305 horsepower, which was pretty impressive, and 225 to 335 pounds of torque. 
Also included were 17 by 9 inch wheels, which were pretty dang big wheel, and a suspension improvements as well, as well as oval tailpipe tips, the W6 badge, and Bilstein shops were, shocks were also further optional for the package. 1997 introduced the standard air conditioning, daytime running lamps, which were pretty much standard now at GM for all their cars, digital odometer, and an optional 500 Watson cassette tape. Now we had cassettes. For V6, AW68 sports appearance package was also introduced as a counterpoint to the Camaro's RS trim because, well, like I said, they were pretty much the same engine, so they had to do something. But um, although these convertibles and, uh, well, sorry, uh, yeah, the W6 Ram Air Performance Package was also available as an option for the Formula and the Trans Am convertibles, although these convertibles did not receive the 17-inch wheels. There were 41 Formula convertibles produced and 463 Trans Am convertibles produced from 696 to 97 with the W6 Package. Now we get to the end, my friends, the 98 to 2001. In relationship to Camaro, Firebird received a mid-cycle refresh for the 98 model year. Major changes included new hood, a front facade with dual intakes, retracted quad hylian front halogen. <laughs> you can tell I've gotten a lot. We're almost an hour here. Holy crap. I've listened longer, a lot longer than I thought it would be. Anyways, on with the show. Obviously, included new headlights and circular style front fog lamps. And a front license plate pocket. Uh, let's see, lower front air vents, unified style, or basically the car, and a new honeycomb rear uh, panel. But uh, to put it bluntly, it was a lot rounder and a lot more aerodynamic, with circular reverse lamps. Yeah. The Firebird Trans Am would once again receive Corvette's 5.7 liter V8 and the LS1 C5 Corvette as the LT1 and LT4 V8s were also discontinued. The LS1 Firebirds were also equipped with an aluminum drive shaft replacing the previous steel version, while all Firebird trim levels gained the four-wheel disc brakes and dual front piston calibers and larger rotor wheels complete with solenoid-based Bosch Indi-Lock brake systems. The four there was Convertible was no longer offered. No longer convertibles. Me. Beginning in 98 to 99 models, a standard 6.6 gallon fuel tank was available. GM's ASR traction control system was uh, extended to the V6 powered Firebirds and all LS1. Basically, all. Basically, they all got the fancy ass traction control system. I. Don't like trash control. It always seems like it's holding me back. Anyways, enhanced uh, sensors for the diagnostic modules and a couple other fancy gizmos and gadgets, EBD systems and such. A few other things like that. In 1999, a shifter variants were also available with the six-speed manual power steering cooler, also being optional for the LS6 Firebirds. In 2000, the W6 package was available exclusively for the 2000 model year Trans Am coupes and convertible variants. And finally. For 2002, more convenience items such as power mirrors and a power antenna became standard equipment with cassette stereos were also phased out. Now, unfortunately, this also marked the end, my friends, of the Pontiac Firebird. As the Camaro was basically discontinued at this point, the um, car was basically dropped entirely. The only thing left remaining, and honestly to this day, is Firehawk. A special edition ultra-performance Firehawk was available for the 97 to basically the 2001. It was produced by LC, LSP Engineering and sold throughout Pontiac's time. Featuring the namesake Firestone Firehawk, which is still produced today. But that's about it. That's all that's left. To be honest, the Pontiac Firebird, in my opinion, still is by far one of the best cars ever produced. And honestly, it was really one of my most favorite cars as well. Trans Am pretty much represented everything in the era, and pretty much what always would. I mean, after all, in the 60s it was a powerful, ridiculously strong muscle car, and the 70s it was a flamboyant, but gaudy-ass big bird that looked pretty damn cool, and with fender flares up to the wazoo. In the 80s, it had tech gadgets and gizmos and gadgets popping out at every angle and orifice. And in the 90s, it had sleek, cool, spacious, aerodynamic designs all the way up until the 2000s and its subsequent death. 
Well, the Firebird may not be the most recognizable car or even the most popular car compared to the Camaros of its time or even the Mustangs and such. It is still one of the most badass vehicles ever produced and honestly produced some of the best engine options, in my opinion, any car would ever offer. While the GTO would still have its powerful engine options and that, Firebird had a unique ability to always produce some very ridiculously overpowered car to the point where, with its lightweight and sporty design, they even had to choke the engine so it wouldn't, well, choke out its GTO competitors. Anyways, with that out of the way, my friends, overall, I give my the Pontiac Firebird, as I own one, a pretty damn good score. While GM would eventually kill Pontiac, which is sad in my opinion, and dashed any hopes of a Pontiac Firebird return, we all still hold out hope as Pontiac fans of us people that maybe one day GM will come to its senses, maybe, and who knows, maybe we'll get a Firebird on the road. Probably be an electric piece of shit, though. Anyways, with that out of the way, and with my brain now zap frying, as you probably could tell, as I progressed probably past the 30 minute mark, you could probably tell my mind began to wander. And, well, I probably rambled on for a bit. I do apologize. But this is probably my longest episode I have ever produced. I hope you all enjoyed it. And I hope you all give me a subscribe or a like or a comment. I appreciate anything you can do, honestly. I do these for fun, and honestly, we'll probably continue to do so as long as I have spare time. Anyways, I hope you all enjoyed the show. I hope you have a great day and a wonderful night. Goodbye, my friends, and hope I can get my car running. And if you have a problem with yours, hope yours will get running as well.